Oh my God, crypto. Surely you didn't think that we could do the first season of The Open Source Economist and not talk about blockchain. Welcome to The Open Source Economist, a podcast about the new economy of free software powering our lives. Brought to you by Christy Chirinos, product manager and entrepreneur. Let's start with crypto. Cryptocurrency, and now increasingly known as crypto, is a form of payment. You can exchange it online for goods or services, usually using something like a cryptocurrency wallet like Coinbase. In economics nerd terms, it's a medium of exchange. And when you have cryptocurrency, you have individual coins that can then be exchanged. Cryptocurrency is built upon blockchain technology. Blockchain technology isn't a whole lot more than an immutable ledger. In less jargony terms, that means that it's a log that no one can change. Consider the way that logs that can change are handled. For example, your bank has the capacity to change your ledger. You deposit cash and they change the ledger in the system. If you've ever been subject to an unfortunate counting mistake, you're aware that the exchange of cash for a change in the little number in your bank account tends to be in charge of a computer, just a big database. With the way that blockchain technology works, that ledger can't ever be changed. It's too secure to be changed. And in addition to that, Generally speaking, it is public. So the ledger can't be changed and everyone can see what has happened. This ends up being a really fantastic avenue for things that require a lot of transparency and a lot of security. However, we're also seeing a lot of controversy come up as this technology becomes more widely adopted. One of the main things that has everybody looking is that naturally, if it's a currency, then cryptocurrency is disrupting the way the markets work. The markets are the backbone of the economy and something that we have usually taken as, well, an immutable thing of its own. As it turns out, cryptocurrency can come in and declare itself a new currency. Ethereum, the second most popular cryptocurrency, is used to create other coins. Creating currency used to be the domain of governments, countries, and maybe you and your friends used something silly as a currency, but nobody beyond you adopted it. With an immutable ledger, anybody who is aware of it can adopt it. Bitcoin, of course, is the big hitter. It has become something that people are buying and selling and speculating on, hoping to become a crypto millionaire. There are stories of people who have done this, and there are stories of people who have lost a lot of money attempting this. In our world, we have regulations when it comes to financial risk, especially for consumers. And we've started to regulate cryptocurrency, but just like a lot of the topics on this podcast, We have a lot of catching up to do and a lot of staying on top of the issue to do. My vantage point is amused and honestly a little bit limited. 
I can observe and I understand. But for this episode, I thought we should talk to someone who not only is an expert, but is also really excited about these developments. David Lockie, I do a few things in the blockchain space. I am co-chair of the BEMA Blockchain Council. BEMA is the British Interactive Media Association, so we're here to represent the voice of the digital industry uh, in the UK. And I advise a few projects as well, uh, which I think we'll probably get onto shortly. Alongside that, I uh, founded Pragmatic, which was one of Europe's largest WordPress agencies. We merged last summer with Angry Creative, who are, um, I think, Europe's largest specialist WooCommerce agency. And I'm CMO there now, which is really uh, a very cool role that I'm very privileged to have. How did you end up getting into uh, the blockchain work? So I remember this so clearly. I walked into work one morning and uh, one of our developers, Nick, was sort of in before me and he was like, he had this chart up on uh, his screen and I was like, and it looked a bit like New Relic and I'm a bit of a, like, obviously I'm a geek, I work in tech, but I was like, dude, that looks really interesting. What What's that? Is that like, a, is that New Relic or, or, or what's going on? It was like, oh no, it's my, it's my Ethereum miner. I was like, you're what? And then uh, that was basically it. Like, so I, I owe that guy a drink because he turned me on uh, to crypto, like, I guess, summer of 2017. I basically took the rabbit hole and followed it down from there um, and just found it like intensely interesting at, at, at every turn. Post-2017, what is going on with open source blockchain technology right now? Nearly every blockchain project that's credible is totally open source, and that's one of the sort of interesting and compelling things about it. Um, so not just the code, but also, uh, you know, the smart contracts. Uh, every, everything is there to be inspected. Um, so when you're looking at a project, trying to figure out what it does, you don't have to believe the hype uh, since they've launched the project and it's on GitHub or, or wherever they're hosting it. You can look at the code, you can talk to the developers, you can see the progress, um, you can investigate how smart contracts work before you choose to interact with them. Now, there's a bit of an on-ramp when it comes to the programming languages that you would need to know to be able to read that code. But if you do have those skills, it's absolutely possible. Cryptocurrency stands as this example of open source software that has billions of dollars at stake. Right now, there's large developments with cryptocurrency, including the Bitcoin Cash Fork, and Ethereum is seeing similar trends. And cryptocurrency is seeing that classic problem that we're seeing all over open source. The devs are a little bit disconnected from the users. But it's not just the consumers this time, it's also the institution of finance. You've got to note DeFi, so decentralized finance. Um, this is something that really kind of sprung up last summer. Uh, it's essentially, if, if you don't know the term DeFi, it means replacing the sort of centralized financial institutions and instruments that we have, brokerages, exchanges, savings, loans, uh, with decentralized versions, which are essentially just um, software. You know, they're often just smart contracts that will do things. Um, so you can exchange one coin to another without having to pay uh, a middle person commission, 
or be dependent on opening hours or discretion. Um, and obviously that opens up some concerns around money laundering um, and you know how people can use finance that nobody controls. But um, there's been some pretty interesting investigation from particularly like US authorities that, that say that actually because of the transparency of blockchain and the fact that you can see every transaction, um, it's, it's a pretty great tool for law enforcement. Um, and so it's less attractive for, for criminals in a lot of ways. And the, you know, the analysis that goes on shows that it's actually a very small proportion of crypto usage that is criminal. Uh, obviously that's like a blend between a pure criminal and then like nation state criminal stuff going on as well. Um, and obviously, you know, money laundering is a, is a thing that happens pretty uh, pretty well in centralized finance. So that's been really, really interesting space to, to watch out. And I think we're going to see a lot more development there. David told me about the way that blockchain is making some businesses even look more attractive. Cryptocurrency giving millions of dollars in returns looks pretty good to investors. You know, obviously there's a lot of froth and a lot of hype in the crypto space, but it's not all like that. And actually when you look side by side, you know, traditional uh, startups, especially fintech, uh, start start looking less exciting when you uh, look at kind of disintermediation and what, what you can do uh, on chain. And of course, there are so many more things going on. As of this recording, June 2021, one of the hot topics is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. I would tell you what they are. They're stuff you just own, but... Let's have David explain it. It's like a digital collectible. So if you um, are into like Pokemon cards or Magic the Gathering cards or Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, it's like one of those. Um, so it's something that you can have, you can trade, you can show off. More likely, uh, your younger relatives will be familiar with like uh, Fortnite or... Um, Roblox or Minecraft. So you can think of NFTs as uh, digital collectibles that you can take with you. So in Fortnite, you can have a, a character skin or a particular gun, but you can't take that to Call of Duty. Not that the young ones should be playing that, but you know they're, they're locked within the environment. The kind of open source and decentralized nature of blockchain and crypto uh, and therefore NFTs mean that those barriers don't exist. You know, so when a when a platform, when a games platform chooses to uh, follow NFT standards, then uh, a character or a skin or any kind of digital asset that you earn in one game can be taken across to you know the next game in the series or even to like a competitor game. Um, so yeah, think of them as digital collectibles that you can earn, trade, invest in, um, and potentially in due course, decorate your digital world. I hadn't considered that. What What's that about? Are we potentially creating opportunities to decorate virtual worlds with NFTs? Yeah, definitely. So you must have watched like Ready Player One. It's a good movie. Um, but yeah, let's say it's the concept of the metaverse, right? So um, that takes different forms depending on people's visions, but it could be 
augmented reality. So you know the idea that you never need to buy a big widescreen telly again. All you need is like your goggles, and you can display like a cinema screen in front of you. It could be virtual reality, so entirely detached from the world that we see around us. Um, and you know, Facebook have got their you know their Oculus platform, mm -hmm. their own virtual reality player. Forget what the name of it is now. We've got Apple Glasses, which are rumored to come out over the next year or two. So whether it's like a layer on the world that we see around us, or it's a you know a metaverse like worlds uh, separate to our own. Okay, but wait, do we have open source virtual reality? Um, there are open source versions of those. So I think there's one called Libreland. The one that I know best is Decentraland. I saw this, um, like I hang around on Twitter too much for my, for my own good, no doubt, but I do see some interesting stuff there. And there was um, like a, a little video clip of uh, somebody running around in Decentraland, which is, you know, it's basically like a VR land. Uh, and people have built their own, you know, so the idea of Decentraland is you buy tokens, you, you buy land, which, um, you know, you use the Decentraland uh, tokens to buy, and then you can do what you want on it, like kind of Minecraft or Roblox, so you can like choose your own adventure. But then of course, uh, because they respect NFTs as well, if you've bought a fantastic painting or a GIF or some sort of virtual artwork, you can also decorate your virtual space with it. Uh, and that was pretty cool. Like this guy or, or girl ran around and then they like went into one of their friends' houses and there was all this like uh, digital art on the walls. And those were all the NFTs that they collected along the way and chosen to sort of show off. So I think one of the things that like old out of touch people like me barely understand it. And well, me, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> definitely no comment there, Christy. But um, the, the <laughs> no matter how technology changes, the immutable ledger of the human instinct to flex will probably never go away. On their own, it's a bit difficult to understand like the value of NFTs. Um, for people who are digitally native, I think they're gonna get it more, especially if you're coming from a gaming background. And I think that's like one of the, one of the use cases that's really gonna fly. But I can also see it happening in the, one of the examples that I really like about it is that they are programmable. So uh, like it's a token that says there is only one of those particular tokens. It can't be duplicated. Um, it can be transferred, but there can only ever be one. So it, it would be like if you had a, <clears throat> like a gold coin that had a serial number 000001, right? I mean, it's like every other gold coin actually it's more valuable because it's got that specific serial number and it's unique because of that so it has like you see rare uh coins selling for sort of 20 times their, their actual nominal value but there's one more thing that is pretty compelling about nfts and that's the idea that you can get a sort of commission every time your nft sells that's why this technology is getting really interesting for artists and other people who have historically struggled to get paid for their creations. If you, if Nike issued an NFT with each pair of sneakers that was like proof of authenticity uh, and a warranty, uh, you know, potentially their receipt as well, and like maybe even a digital representation of those sneakers, so you could like put them on your wall in your virtual house as well like wear them as a character skin 
then um, actually you can program secondary uh, market economics into that. So uh, every time that NFT gets transferred, implying like a change of ownership of the shoes, <clears throat> you as Nike could get 10% of that transaction value or 90%, or you could start off at 90% and tailor it, taper it off to 10%, or you could ramp it up, or you could say, if it's sold above this amount or below that amount or anything like that, right? So it gives uh, artists and creators the ability to uh, keep involved with the economics of their creation over their lifetime. And I think, you know, for brands, that's kind of interesting. I think for artists, it could be absolutely revolutionary because it means that you can get your work out to the market, you know, as a songwriter <clears throat> yourself. Oh, yeah. Have we mentioned that? I write songs. You know, if you don't have to sell your, you know, there's this massive tension online. You see like uh, Shutterstock and Getty are charging big money for photos, but then you've got like Unsplash and Pexels and it's like, you've really only got quite a binary choice. But if you could take the idea of like zero barrier to entry, uh, but then program it in so that when people uh, use or transfer or resell what you've made, you actually get a cut of that ongoing. It means that it changes the way that uh, people go to market and uh, people can make a living. So, Okay, but we have to discuss one more controversy. And that's the idea that cryptocurrency and the way it has to be exchanged takes up so much electricity that it's dangerous for the Earth. Recent estimates puts the energy usage of Bitcoin at a million times more carbon emissions than a single Visa transaction. And even Elon Musk of Tesla has come out against the environmental danger of Bitcoin. It's, it's a really tough one. There's no doubt that like Bitcoin is using a hell of a lot of electricity. Any other proof of network, uh, proof of work protocols also use a lot of electricity. Uh, there's no saying that there is a different way to do things like proof of stake, which is a different way uh, of of kind of generating consensus in a, in a protocol. You know, it may not work. It's still relatively unproven. Um, but I would I would definitely say, like, go read some stuff that's out there because the story isn't that simple. No, Nobody's denying, like, the electricity use, but there are you know, renewable energy sources that are unprofitable to use in other ways. There are uh, negative impacts of traditional finance, of gold mining, of diamond mining, all that kind of stuff as well. So, um, you know, don't just look at the headlines, go and dig in. There are some really good and interesting resources out there. Um, and, and yes, let's definitely make it more renewable and better. Um, but it's not a simple story. I want to kind of... I don't, I don't want to say move on because we're not moving on. We're zooming in even more. You're an advisor to WordProof. And I have been following uh, Sebastian's progress. His project looks really interesting. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about blockchain and web publishing. Yeah, sure. Um, super proud to be working with Seb and the team. Um, I first came across WordProof uh, at the... I think it was the last in-person WordCamp, so Berlin, which seems a long time ago now. Uh, and he was super impressive on stage. And uh, I was just sitting there in my chair going, that is a bloody great idea and kicking myself for not thinking of it. But um, yeah, so now very pleased to be working with them. In a nutshell, WordProof creates yet another immutable ledger, this time of changes to content on the web. 
And so it creates a sense of trust because you can see everything that has happened. And so therefore, you're most likely to not be as easily duped. You can check your sources. So how do we know that the content that we're reading is the content that was published? Um, you know, the nation states are very, very sophisticated with uh, what they can do, whether that's China, whether it's the, the US. Um, how do I know that that New York Times piece is, is real? You know, one of the things that people say about blockchain is that it's like a, a solution looking for a problem. And so I'm very conscious of that. And I try and think about uh, that intersection from a perspective of, you know, can this tech help us solve some of these challenges that uh, I think this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem with things like uh, uh, deep faking and just the ability for AI and generative AIs to produce content uh, at a scale that I don't think that we're kind of really ready for culturally. So I think trust becomes that much more important. It's a defense mechanism that's there. The other kind of interesting part about timestamping is that um, it provides transparency um, and authenticity as well. So if you're an e-commerce store, um, at the moment, there's really nothing to stop you changing your terms and conditions online from one day to the next. And you as a consumer are like, but I'm pretty sure I like nobody reads terms and conditions. But if you did read their refund policy and it said like return up to 14 days and then they changed it to say seven days, uh, like how can you prove it? Again, I have to kind of applaud Seb for taking one of the qualities of blockchain, that kind of immutability and applying it to some real world problems. There's like three other things that I, I think about quite a lot. So the the second one is around um, earning a living. Um, so like, you know, you could produce the, the meme that's all over Reddit and entertains millions of people across the world, you know, for weeks uh, or longer. Or a highly detailed technical podcast right. that is going to make exactly zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that. Um, but yeah, so it like it often feels... Like you're either stuck with like the kind of whole ad tech ecosystem, which is increasingly difficult to navigate from an ethical point of view when we know that mass surveillance does happen and, you know, the ability for an individual to escape manipulation by, you know, very sophisticated corporate uh, algorithms becomes, you know, almost impossible. So one of the other projects that I'm involved with is uh, web monetization. So this is like a, like open standards and protocols for streaming money. Like you would stream Netflix, you stream money. So the idea is that you, uh, as a content creator, embed like a payment pointer, which is basically like an email address for money uh, in your website or in your social profile. And uh, when a visitor with a digital wallet with funds in it visits your site, visits your profile then you uh the visitors start streaming money uh, and interestingly this technology uh which kind of runs over a, a protocol called interledger uh, is being driven by a company called coil primarily um and it's interesting because it's not blockchain but the coil founders definitely come out of that blockchain space so mm -hmm. that's one of the things that i find very interesting about the space is that blockchain might not be the right 
solution technologically, but it changes the way that we think about how to solve these problems. And then it lets us like be more creative about solving them. So there is currently a nonprofit organization called Grant for the Web that is, uh, it's run by, well, the, the members are Coil, Mozilla, Creative Commons at the moment. And it's a $100 million grant fund to help promote the web monetization standard. So if you're doing any kind of software development and you're interesting in, interested in playing around with uh, micropayments, so currency agnostic, could be USD, could be BTC, could be whatever you want, uh, and you've got a valid use case, like they're opening up calls for proposals um, in the future. And they've given out some really interesting grants to um, distributed media labs. Um, I've been honored to be uh, their ambassador for the WordPress space. So I'll be kind of shouting as much as I can about it because I just think it's it's super neat. It's not difficult to imagine that apps and browsers are going to come with digital wallets built in over time. Uh, and that, that then I think makes it even more important to have these open protocols and standards so that anyone anywhere can publish uh, send receive payments over time. Okay, quick recap. We have NFTs. We have a secondary market associated with those NFTs. We have timestamps for content and we have web monetization. There is so much exciting stuff going on here. There are some other really good uh, projects in this space. Uh, Brave as a browser is really interesting as well. Um, it's a very privacy protecting browser, saves you loads of time and money because it blocks loads of ad trackers. It's based on Chrome, so you can use loads of extensions, but it also comes with its own uh, token built in. So it blocks ads, but if the publisher, the content creator signed up to their reward scheme, then they receive uh, token rewards. And actually, they're worth, um, they're worth a lot more now than, than they were. Um, so it can be pretty meaningful. Uh, but interestingly, it's a two-way street. So you can earn back rewards, uh, back to their token, by viewing like sponsored content as well. So it's not just like you're always paying the content creators. When I guess when you're the product, you also get to earn these tokens. And I think those little... Uh, micro transactions working two ways will build a, a really rich way for people to kind of interact and sustain each other. Like obviously where I spend a lot of time thinking, so just cut me off if I go too long. But, um. No, this is great. I have so many things to look into here <laughs> because this, uh, this goes way beyond blockchain. We're talking financial innovation. We're talking ethics. We're talking web publishing. There are pieces and bits that we need to look to towards the future in all of these things. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that, that strikes the heart of my interest in, in this tech is I'm by no means like a crypto anarchist or crypto utopian but it, it provides the technology provides like a really interesting balance to what otherwise seems to be like this inexorable centralization of power um so the, the third thing that i think about a lot in terms of open like web publishing uh and and blockchain is uh open source and the economics behind that so uh i've seen in my time a lot of heartache around open source maintainers um, mm -hmm. and the work that they do and like the lack of reward that they get. Um, so was it the guy behind one of the sort of big anti-spam plugins for WordPress basically was on this like 
multi-year crusade defending WordPress sites against like the worst that the internet can throw at you, which is like, you know, awful, obviously awful stuff. You know, he burned out. Ah, there's that word again. Uh, you know, he burned out and had to stop. Um, you know, we've seen examples of like uh, supply chain cybersecurity issues, right? Mm -hmm. So where NPM packages are abandoned because there's no financial incentive to like maintain them anymore and then they get taken over um or like bad stuff happens basically because the open source ecosystem is now so like the supply chain is so complicated mm -hmm. and complex um and people will argue that like introducing incentives will create perverse incentives and it changes the way that people behave and i totally buy into that and i, I know that that's a risk but I also feel like it's something that we have to solve for as well. You know, we need to find a way to make open source maintenance um, sustainable. That's a recurring theme. And if you'd like to listen to that more and you haven't gone back and listened to the labor market episode, I highly recommend you do that. But before I let David go, I had to ask him a non-blockchain question. Outside of his work with this technology, he has also deployed things like WordPress and other open source technologies for some really big brands. And I wanted to shine some light on how that happens. Well, it was very cool. Um, oftentimes, the brand had made the decision already. And I think that speaks to like the the magnetism of, of WordPress and just the, the sort of ubiquity of it. It also speaks to some of the challenges of, of using the, the alternative systems. I mean, I have spent a lot of time talking to enterprise web uh, teams and often if you're using one of the sort of big Adobe or um, like the, I think Adobe, I'm not hating on them, but um, it seems to be particularly uh, common there is that They've got a dev team, uh, but the dev team's next slot is in six months' time because their backlog is full and most of it is like maintenance and bug fix, right? So uh, those massive systems can be extremely capable, but uh, they are not necessarily built for agility. And if you do the implementation wrong or even imperfectly, uh, then it can become a lot of tech debt very quickly. Um, so often we win work with very big brands and enterprises because they need to do something quickly and they simply can't do it internally. Uh, and there's very little uh, choice in terms of technology to, to do what they need to do. So typically that's sort of content marketing, but increasingly and particularly over the pandemic and the lockdown, it was e-commerce as well. So suddenly brands had to go from um, sort of their b2b channels through to d2c and that was honestly one of the most rewarding parts about the pandemic for for me personally and i think for our business was um being able to enable businesses with e-commerce that they could own uh you know shopify is awesome a lot of people want to own their store rather than rent mm -hmm. it and being able to do that for businesses with a Big or small is just like super powerful because that, um, like imagine what the pandemic would have been like without the internet, right? The internet has just enabled so many people to keep 
creating value, earning a living, paying for their food and their rent. Um, and so being able to help people with that in a, in a sort of really directly visible way has been, been pretty awesome. Even just doing something. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> for me yeah because i i'm the kind of person that is always out and about and i haven't gotten that for the past year i would be going nuts if i couldn't at least be doing something you know it, it sort of feeds my extrovert brain in at least some sort of way thank god for twitter right <laughs> <laughs> exactly but, but um okay. I, I would also say like it's also super hard work right you know these are you know, when you're dealing with small businesses, often you're dealing with people who have been through like maybe one digital project or they have some knowledge. Um, when you're dealing with like a digital team in an enterprise, like this is their job. They've worked with agencies before. They understand like what the contractual framework should be. They understand just how hard they can push you. Uh, you know, how much leverage can they apply before like it, it all falls apart. So they're very good at getting their pound of flesh. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a very respectful way. Like there's there's nowhere to hide. Often they're more knowledgeable than you are about like the digital space, maybe not like WordPress, but everything else. Some of the enterprise level requirements like around accessibility, performance, documentation, compliance, integrations are just like intense to figure out, get your head around, plan the work. And of course, you know, if you're dealing with, public companies in regulated marketing industries, mm. you know, potentially publicly traded, lots of stakeholders, like the pressure is pretty intense. You know, somebody somebody high up wants something done, it needs to be done fast, yes, but it also needs to, you need to basically like read the Bible and memorize it. I valued this conversation with David so much. I learned a lot about what's going on in blockchain beyond the shiny headlines and the crazy swings in Bitcoin and Dogecoin. And instead, I did see the potential for how it can move our world forward while still keeping a measured view and not being a crypto anarchist, like David said. And it's exciting. And we should all keep an eye on these things because... If it's affecting the economy, it's probably going to affect you. David's amazing. You can find him on Twitter at, at Divi Davi, D-I-V-Y, D-O-V-Y. And you can also find him with Angry Creative and everywhere online that has to do with blockchain. Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the Open Source Economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Ali Nimmons. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.